For many people, the process of buying and selling a home will undoubtedly be the most difficult decision they will make in their lifetime. Is the price you're paying for your home fair? Is the price you're selling your home an adequate sale price? For a long time, realtors have been the oracles with the answers to those questions, but times are changing. And today, Opendoor, a data-driven real estate startup, is putting data to work to answer those questions for you. Opendoor from a technical perspective, hands down single most fascinating technical challenge I've ever come across. If you look at the questions that we have to answer, they're just fascinating. You have to answer them in the right ways, otherwise they just don't really work. You think about the prediction problem, you think about the optimization problem, you think about the portfolio optimization problem. There's just so many different pieces to the problem and you just have to do it. Kushal Chakrabarty is the VP of Research and Data Science at Opendoor, a company that is reimagining the way homes are bought and sold by moving the process online and empowering buyers and sellers to make informed decisions by taking an algorithmic approach and removing the ambiguous nature of the home buying process. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Kushal explains some of the processes Opendoor uses to help make home offers, including the importance of clean and trustworthy data. Plus, Kushal opens up on his personal journey, including how he got into data science and some of the trends he sees in the AI and machine learning space. IT Visionaries is created by the team at Mission.org and brought to you by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Innovate fast, empower every employee, and scale with confidence from anywhere with a customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform. Welcome everyone to another episode of IT Visionaries and today, we have the VP of Research and Data Science at Open Door, Kushal Chakrabarty. Kushal, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. Right out the gate. We always do this. Tell us what Open Door is and what does it do? Because not, you know, I feel like all of our customers should know what Open Door is by now, but you know, who knows? Open Door is amazing. Everyone should know about it. I like boiling things down to their essence. I'll just, uh, I'll just get right to it. Open Door buys and sells homes algorithmically. And what that means is that this process that took 90 plus days required multiple showings, throngs of random strangers traipsing through your home, like lots of uncertainty about when it's going to sell, what it's going to sell for, et cetera. We can just get it done in, in a matter of few days. You come to our website, you type in your address, you fill out a few things, you get you get a dollar amount. If that number looks good to you, um, you know we, we double check a few other things. Um, you hand us the keys and we deposit a bunch of money in your bank account and you're done. This, can, this entire thing can be done end to end in just a few days, basically. So this is super fascinating because there are certain pockets of the United States right now where real estate is just on fire. And I happen to live in one of them, which is Raleigh Durham. So I do remember buying a house. I remember selling and buying a house. I remember that process. And now I'm looking at possibly buying an investment house. And so I've started using Open Door. And so I think this will give me, this will have a, frame up our conversation. One of the unique things about Open Door is clearly there's a lot of data. I want to know how you guys kind of go about doing this process. But number one, you are creating suggested retail prices. You're, you're suggesting the price. You are also suggesting what you think you could buy it at. And if you are preemptively offering money for homes, which Open Door has done, they just send me a letter straight up and says, hey, we will buy your house right now if you want to sell it. <laughs> you have to know some type of, with some type of certainty that what the sale price is going to be because you're going to have to create some type of margin. Otherwise, you're going to be holding a highly illiquid asset, <laughs> which sucks <laughs> for a long period of time. So talk about all those variables that go into it, because 
you said it right out the gate. This is a very data driven process. It's no longer, do I feel it? Do I see it? Is it like, what, what is this process? Because obviously no one came to my house. Nobody came and checked out the valuation of my home. I'm not working with someone to find the valuation of someone else's home. It's just telling me, I think I can open door, can either pick it up at this or sell this house at this. It's always got a recommendation. Let's start there. How do you begin to make these recommendations? Where do these numbers come from? Yeah. So this is one of those like, you know, 007 moments, right? Like if I told you I'd have to kill you kind of things, like you know, this is this exploiting message type situation. <laughs> so without going too much into the secret sauce of, of all the specific things that we do, and there, there's a certain amount of nuance and it's a certain amount of uh, art to what we do, obviously art and science. I think it comes down to this point that there's actually quite a lot that you can do without actually visiting a house. If you look at like tax assessor records, you can see like, uh, you know, what, what it's sold for with uh, historical information about this house. You can look at what are other comparable houses, what, what did they sell for recently? You can look at how prices are increasing over time or, you know, like in, in some cases, like how they've been decreasing. There's a lot of things that you can look at to try to get to the crux of the problem. And I can't really obviously get much more specific than that because there's obviously there's certain secrets out here. Right. But I think if you look at um, Open Door from a technical perspective, I can tell you why I personally joined Open Door, which is that this is the hands down single most fascinating technical challenge I've ever come across. I can get into why later, but one of the things that, that comes out of there is like, I think if you look at the questions that we have to answer, they're just fascinating. You have to answer them in the right ways. Otherwise, they just don't really work. You think about the prediction problem, you think about the optimization problem, you think about the portfolio optimization problem. There's just so many different pieces to the problem and you just have to do it. You have to really think about it incisively. Yeah. Talk a little bit about it. Like, Why is this such a fascinating technical challenge? You kind of hinted at that before. Because to an outsider, if you're a data scientist, that's what you want. You want a lot of variables, you want a lot of data, you want a lot of different outcomes. In a way, the final product here is almost like a singular thing. You're doing all this data to just tell me one thing, which is you know, my buy or sell price. And of course, on the back end, you guys have all the numbers to say like, will we make a profit on this transaction, whatever. But at the end, all this information has to culminate in this one thing. And then you also have to be so convincing that I'll choose you over working with a traditional retailer, realtor, let's say. Yeah, two points. I would say it's actually a little bit more than a number, right? So I think the things that we think about at Open Door are really a few notions of convenience, of trustworthiness and speed. And Sure. There's a bunch of stuff. You know, like one part of that is the number, yeah. but like there's a bunch of things that really go into that. That's actually really important. And really that's what ultimately matters to the customer, which is what we really care about is like convenience, trustworthiness, and speed, basically. So to answer the, the deeper question though, right? Like, so what makes it so fascinating? What makes it this incredibly interesting technical challenge? So there's a guy called Peter Norvig. Um, Peter Norvig is the head of research at Google and wrote like probably the seminal book in artificial intelligence. It's a it's like 20, 30 years old, and, and uh, it's like the book. Anyways, uh, we should say he, he knows a thing or two about data, algorithms, artificial intelligence, machine learning, et cetera. He has this quote about Google, which is, we don't have better algorithms, we just have more data. It's actually quite true. Like, if you think about like these terms and all these equations that we, we try to like model, learn, optimize, whatever, not to get too much into the details, but a lot of these terms just vanish to zero as you get enough data. And, and the problems actually become relatively straightforward. But this sort of begs the question, like, what do you do if you don't have more data, right? And if you think about the O of N of, you know, Google searches per day, if you think of like Amazon searches per month versus the average number of homes that an average American buys in an average year, these are just, these are just fundamentally different numbers, right? Like, so they just, it just is completely different. Yeah. And, and so what do you do when the data just doesn't exist, when the data, you just, you just can't get the data? And you know, I think if you look at the, the history of data science, machine learning, et cetera, like 
I think there's, there's two broad trends over the last uh, last couple of decades. One is that there's just a broad democratization of tools, things that you know my peers and I spent days, months, and weeks just building, hand building, are just now available like as garden variety tools. And two is this massive explosion of data, which means that in most of these situations, a lot of these situations, if you just throw enough data at one of these like black box learning tools, you may not get the perfect answer, but you'll get a good enough answer in most cases. Whereas for us, that just doesn't work. You have to think about the problem structurally. You have to think about incisive. You have to think about like, what is the data generating process? Or like, what is it really at play here? And what, like the analogy that I draw is, you know, it's kind of like a, um, it's kind of like a watch, right? You can either model like the fact that the hour hand on a watch goes around the, around the circle in a certain way, and you can build a model to predict that. Or you could try to dissect out the inner mechanisms of a watch with the gears and the gear interacts with that hand thing this way. And like, you can get a very different result that way. And you have to think, you have to really understand the inner mechanism of the watch to, to really work this work. So talk a little bit about, you know, some of the variables that are, you mentioned before, once you have enough data, the algorithms are become less important. And one of the things that used to not be readily available among real estate search tools is what were the bid prices? Like it was totally unclear. You know what I mean? Like, I'm sure if we roll open door back to the first days or early days of some of the other real estate search products that are out there, they had no idea what the bids were. Really, no one did. The realtor was the only person that knew. So like the first step was like, how do we collect the bids? And I noticed in Open Door, I can make an offer on a house now. Was that part of the decision making? Like, hey, we need to know what people are willing. Like, I, I mean, uh, I, I can't speculate on on that specifically for reasons yeah. that, that you can imagine. But like, you know, we're we're always interested in in more and more data, right? Like, right. more data of about different sorts of things. I think we're we're always excited about. No, okay, it makes total sense. And when you think about like the user experience, you talked about this. This is something that I think a lot of people have just chalked up to tradition. Maybe you know what I mean, like. If I wanted to sell my house, like, do I trust this entity that I don't recognize? Will my cash deposit? How do I move out of it? Like, I know there's a lot of, if I think to when I sold my house, let's just go on the sell side. The amount of paperwork I had to fill out was mind boggling. It was like a book. It was a huge, it is. massive book of things I had to sign off on just to sell my house, let alone buy one. I had to buy one too, which sucked too. We've never made this argument, but I would love for us to make an argument. It's like, look, we just cut down the number of amount of paper that you have to, like, this is, this is, this is the green way to sell houses. <laughs> yeah. Like if you did ads, we're like, Hey, this is what you'll have to fill out if you sell your house without us. And this is what you'll fill out with us. So I want to ask you, like you mentioned before, trustworthiness, speed, convenience. These are all things that you guys consider at Open Door to make it easier to sell and buy homes. How do you guys go about that process? Because that's a lot of data as well. Manually, manually entered, right? By me as a seller, I have to do all that. Talk about like what, how you guys approach making this more simple and making it easier so that customers can easily transact what is arguably the biggest transaction of their life. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a trade-off of, of a few different things here. We want to make sure we do right by the customer. I think that's, that's the, the overarching premise, right? I think there's a few things that go into that. One is uh, convenience. One is trustworthiness. And, and, you know, these, these can be sometimes, you know, you have to balance these two, right? So like there are historical information, there are historical records, but once you start looking at the data, like, you know, some of this data is like, it's, it's pretty awful, right? Like anyone who's worked in data science will know like the data normalization, data cleaning that just goes into some of these things. Like I've seen situations where, you know, like there's a field that encodes the number of, of bedrooms, let's say, right. And in some places it says, two, the number two, and then other places it says the word two, like T-W-O. And this is just a thing. This happens all the time. Like that's, this is obviously a dumb example, but there's lots of examples of like bad data, unclean data, dirty data. And 
if we calculate a price based on that, you get the wrong number. And now all of a sudden we've insulted you. And this is a bad experience for you because this is the most important, it's not only the most important uh, transaction in your life, it's also the most important. So it's almost certainly the largest financial asset in your life. And we want to do the right things to take care of it mm -hmm. for you. And so I think there's always a balance of like, how much do we ask you to put in? How much do we use of external data, et cetera, things like that. And so we're always trying to figure out that balance, but right, we, we think we do a reasonable job of um, balancing how much we pre-fill versus ask you to verify, et cetera. Yeah. And let's dive a little bit into your background. You know, you kind of hinted at how you guys approach the problem, how you guys solve the problem. Of course, you can only say so much about before we give away the data. You know, one of the things that's pretty interesting about you is how many companies you look to advise to. Uh, you have significant experience in data science, research, and so on. Talk a little bit about your career a little bit. How did you get into this field? What brought you in and said, hey, this is something I want to, let's start with study how you, that you wanted to study and learn more about? Yeah, absolutely. I have a, a, you know, you and I are talking right before this, right? It's like, you know, I, I think we're both uh, quite bad students. Um, I have like actual apps <laughs> on my transcripts and we can get into that if, if uh, it might, <laughs> might be interesting. But like, I, you know, let me, uh, let me give it the top level and then I'll, I'll get into, let me give the facts and I can dive into anything that, that might be interesting. Yeah. My joke is that I've been doing data science before it was called data science. That's a, uh, that's a joke, but it's also factually true. Uh, so I've been doing this since the early 2000s. I trained originally as a computational biologist. So worked on the human uh, genome project, the mouse genome project, uh, rat genome projects. Grossly simplifying, but broadly like, you know, building complex statistical parser to predict cancer genes, basically. Plan was to be a research scientist, a research professor. I think I was, uh, you know, I think I was all right at it. And uh, that was the original trajectory. Uh, ended up getting recruited to Amazon. Um, ran, uh, ran engineering for their personalization team for a little bit. I was, uh, let's say, a little cocky. Um, I, I was good and knew I was good. Uh, thought I could do more. Started two companies. One worked, one didn't. Um, both in fintech, both valuing very complex assets, educations and employments, respectively. You can obviously draw the line to real estate from there. Uh, real estate is obviously a very complex asset. And um, this started out as an accident, but um, having an advisor to, I don't I forget how many companies at this point, probably like 10, 15, um, 10, 15 plus, I think the job at a certain level as a founder or a leader or an executive, you're expected to be technically great at some point. You're expected to be managerially great at some point. And the, the, those are just table stakes. And really what distinguishes the greats from the goods, in my opinion, at, after a certain level is, is kind of this notion of like, I've seen this movie before. You don't like how it ends, like do something different. And you know, if you like uh, founder, exec jobs tend to be three, five-year commitments. Like it's just math. Right? There's only so many five-year stints in a career. You only get to watch so many movies if you, follow, if you respect the, the, the natural structure of, of, of a career. And so um, ended up joining as an advisor at a bunch of these companies. And it happened totally by accident, but I realized that I could come in as a C-level advisor and see across five, six, seven different companies um, over the period of like one, two years. And it was just fascinating to see companies in different verticals with different founders, with different business models, with different operating processes and values. And like, you, could, you start just seeing like so many different patterns emerge of, of what works and what doesn't. So from that viewpoint, vantage point, I'm assuming most of these organizations, they ask you to specifically on the data science side or where, where are they asking you for, where are they seeking domain experience? Because you have so much, you have both, like you mentioned, the leadership role, the technical role, the science-based role, you know, data or data science role, you know, you have all these different places you have experience in. Where do you see most organizations asking you to help them? Absolutely. Um, I exclusively focus on the data science aspect of it, not necessarily the technical, although I'm brought in um, on occasion for that. 
it tends to be either about standing up new data science organizations, fixing existing ones, proving out new business lines. You know, there's this Isaac Asimov quote, right? Like any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And I think that ends up being quite true, especially in data science, where there's like very fine nuances of what makes a question answerable versus hard to answer versus completely impossible, like requires magic. And you have to really understand the technical nuances and what's possible, what's not, what's useful, what's not to really be able to hone in on the right question. And so it, it tends to be across a, a bunch of things, but, but um, all exclusively related to around data science. All right. Well, we got to ask about that then, because as far as we can tell from our interviews, every company is expanding in their data science capability, looking for more headcount, looking for more to answer more questions that you just eloquently framed it. But you said something just a moment ago that I want to dive into, which is that, is it even possible to answer? You said that you, that's something that is fundamentally a challenge when you help these teams is like, say like, Hey, are you even answering, are you even attempting to answer the right question? And so I'd love for you to explain a little further. How do you recognize something as, you know, something that can be answered with technology today and data available today and something that's going to, can only be answered maybe down the road. Cause I think the core belief of most people in this discipline is that all questions will be possible to be answered with data and science eventually, but it's a matter of like, what about today? Yeah. Not to nerd out too much. Um, not nerd out. Our audience loves it. Get, get into it. <laughs> yeah. So it turns out there are questions that are provably unanswerable, right? Like if you search for this thing called a halting problem, which uh, I, I think many of the audience will be familiar with, like it is provably unanswerable. It just, it is no matter how much data you get, no matter how fast the computers get, it's just not answerable full stop. But like most things aren't like that, right? Like there are uh, lots of nuances. I wish I could, I wish I could boil this down to like one or two things. The, there isn't necessarily an easy way to, to boil it down, but I, I think I can say like maybe I can probably maybe give a give a few heuristics, right? There's this notion in data science called Twyman's law, which is which is basically just to if it's too good to be true, if it looks too good to be true, it probably is too good to be true. Um, there are lots of I think disciplined questions uh, and functional practice questions of doing things right. Like I think a standard problem that you see is is this notion called information leakage where you're kind of using the thing that you're supposed to be predicting to actually predict it. And it's like, well, oh, hey, I have like 100% prediction accuracy. It's like, well, that's because you may not know whether or not they have cancer, but like if they're taking cancer meds and you're using that as part of your prediction, you're sort of cheating. It doesn't, doesn't quite work that way, right? You don't get to, you don't get to see that, right? Um, there's, there's all, and I think that's like the, like the table stakes stuff. I think there's a bunch of stuff around just functional practices. And I think there's a bunch of things around Knowing what data is out there, I think there's now a massive industry about um, broadly called alternative data, about things that you wouldn't normally consider to be data sets, but like that are, that are quite valuable if you, if you knew about it in different things. Like, so as a concrete example, I think um, looking at, at like uh, receipts of companies um, is actually a very powerful way if you're like a hedge fund to know where consumer interest and sentiment is headed. Um, this ends up being a very powerful thing in a bunch of ways, but most people don't want to say no that their Safeway receipts are actually being used as data in, in other places. And that that is. I think the third is the convolution of of data sets with algorithms, um, and this is really like the way you frame a specific question. Like it might be really hard to know a specific. It might be really hard to answer a specific framing of a specific question, but if you just tweak it a little bit, maybe it's actually quite easy to answer. Right. So, for example. There's an XQCD comic out there about 
uh, about this thing that like, you know, just like, hey, tell me if this photo is taken in a uh, national park versus, hey, tell me if this photo has a picture of a bird in it. And it turns out like that actually just as when that comic was written five years ago was a really hard thing to answer. But now with all the computer vision stuff that's come out is totally answerable. So, you know, one of the things that you, you dive into and the way you were explaining things, I got to ask how much of data science is in, I'm just, I just wrote like buckets. Like as you were talking, I was trying to bucket what you were saying into different buckets because you quote quite a few th- theories, right? Then you also will quote methodologies. Like you said, for example, is it a data set or is it an algorithm problem? So if it's a data set, that's a methodology because it doesn't require programming to like say this data lives here. Right. Well, in my mind, maybe I'm wrong. You might be like, reach through the screen and slap me. So it's, it's a piece of theory. It's a piece of methodology. And then it's also a piece of technical, uh, the actual technical expertise, execution, the algorithm. Is that, is that how you fundamental thing of like three meth- buckets of solutions to solve problems and answer these questions? Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a really good way of putting it. It's actually, I, I tend to do, I do think in threes, I would put the buckets slightly differently. I think there's one notion of like, let's say systems and tools. I think two, there's a notion of like playbooks. And three is this notion of what I would call hearts and minds, basically. I think systems and tools are like relatively straightforward. There's just a bunch of stuff out there that like this, these are the access to the data sets. These are being able to visualize the data sets in the right ways. I think systems and tools is really about making the easy way, the obvious right way. This is like the clear, uh, this is the path basically, right? Right. And, and making it easy to uh, making it easy to do that. Um, I think playbooks are, are really about um, making the one true path very uh, obvious and very hard to kind of diverge from. Like, this is like, hey, this is, this is your 10-step thing. Like, you can just work through this and this, this broadly gets you to. I think the hearts and minds is really where you have to, to really understand some of the art and science and really understand like these finer notions of judgment and things like that, which is about, can you incentivize people to do the right things? Can you set up your organization to produce that? Even if you're not doing the direct work, can you can you ensure that the, the inevitable outcome of the organization is, is uh, what you wanted the work to be in any ways? And I think that's really where um, some of the biggest stuff is. Now, fascinating. Inside of Hearts and Minds, I, also, I, I think of intent. Absolutely. I used to always do these, these examples and talks back when I was in the software game doing presentations. And one of the things we talked about was like, you know, data will tell you a lot, but it doesn't necessarily give you an answer. And people are like, what do you mean? And so I said, okay, well, I'll use two examples of someone who had a lot of data and was wrong and someone who had no data, but was right. Because of course you got to go both directions. And I'd love to hear your mind on how to solve these problems. Okay. So the first example I used was McDonald's and the Mighty Wing. Aftermath, they launched the Mighty Wings. They ended up not selling like hundreds of millions of dollars of chicken wings. They had to go to waste. So what happened? They tested it. In every focus group, all the data and evidence suggested that this was a good product. People liked it. People graded it well and all kinds of things happened. But when it went to market, it didn't sell. And I used to always joke because they didn't ask the key question. The key question wasn't whether or not a Mighty Wing tastes good. But the key question was, would you spend money on a Mighty Wing given all the other options to buy food? What McDonald's found out the hard way is people would go to McDonald's to buy burgers, right? They didn't buy the Mighty Wing. And when they wanted wings, they would go to a wing restaurant. Because uh, they weren't able to measure, I guess, the social aspect of why eat wings. Like people tend to do it at sports bars and stuff like that. Then the other example I used of having no data but being completely wrong, or not enough data to be completely right, either way you want to look at it, was GoPro. Why was GoPro not invented, or why was Spanx not invented by a hosiery company or a camera company? And I said because all your data would suggest that there's no significant demand, because because no one was clamoring for 
Spanx. No one was clamming for hosiery without feet that covered up the waistline. No one was clamoring for surfing cameras because it didn't exist. And people don't, people don't ask for things that don't exist. Right. So I'd like to fundamentally bring those historical problems that happened in the past, but I'd love to hear like, how, how would data science help answer any of those questions today? And you can just pick one, or if you want to do all three, that'd be fun too. Absolutely. Uh, we talk a lot about this at Open Road. I've talked a lot about this in a bunch of the companies advised. So I think there's this notion of qual and quant research. And I think before all of this, you have to ask the right question. If you're not asking the right question, it doesn't really matter, right? Like to the point of uh, to, to your McDonald's, uh, my doing example, right? Even if you're asking the right question, I think data and quantitative research in general is really good about answering how much of something is happening. It's sort of good of what is, what is happening. In contrast, qualitative research is really good at answering why something is happening. It's sort of good at answering how much, or sorry, what is happening, but it doesn't really answer how much. And uh, conversely, quantitative research can't answer why something is happening. You really need these to work together. You sort of, this kind of goes to this, again, hearts and minds aspect of this, which is that you you really need to work together and you really need to kind of bring together qualitative research and quantitative research to do things in the right way, to answer questions in the right ways. But before that, you also have to be asking, asking the right questions to even start with. So in the case of, or any company that is going to pilot or launch a new product, then we would agree that before you ask whether or not people like it, the question really to ask is, would you spend money on this over everything else? Yeah, which is, which is exactly the question about why, right? You know, I'm sure like, uh, not speculate too much, I'm, I'm sure that that company did a lot of uh, research about, oh, look, hot wings, big market, we should go into it. And <laughs> no one ever asked, why are they buying hot wings? And why are they buying in that context? And you have to really think about that. Yeah. I don't know the specifics of that specific situation, but I, I, but I, could, but I could imagine something like that happening. There's a lot of good judgment and, and a lot of art that goes into understanding what the real the essence of, of the question is and asking better questions and then answering them better through a combination of both quantitative research, aka data science, and qualitative research. There you go. That's that hearts and minds concept again, right? That intuition, that instinct to ask the right questions. Let me ask you another question. Do you think that will ever get replaced by machines? Great question. Uh, I love that question. Um, <laughs> I have a two-year-old daughter uh, and I spend a lot of time thinking about this. I, I don't have a crystal ball. I wish I did. Yeah. Both for Open Door, but also my daughter. Um, I don't. I what I do know and deeply believe is that I think math and empathy are gonna be really hard to replace. And so if I had to place a bet, which I am, of where I, you know, how I nudge my daughter and how I help her uh, succeed in life, um, I would nudge her to make a bet on math and empathy. I couldn't agree more. I think machines will do a lot of great things, but ultimately your ability to guess. And this is, is kind of goes into, you call it empathy. I, I just call it guessing because that's what we had in sales, right? It's like, can you read the person? Can you read the person and say like, do they like talking to you? Do they like the product? Like you just, you have to read in between the lines because, you know, I mean, Henry Ford, Steve Jobs, all the famous greats, entrepreneurs, they always said like, people don't ask people what they want because they won't be able to tell you. Absolutely. It's intuition, right? I mean, you're, you're a sales guy, right? Guessing is, yeah, guessing doesn't sound good. Intuition sounds great. <laughs> like, you know. It's like I use my I use my judgment and intuition. It's guessing. It's all the same, but but it's just it's a nice word for it. Oh man, Kashal, it was awesome hearing your theories and hearing how you approach solving teams, solving data science challenges. But before we continue, it is time now for the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by the Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Kashal, this is where we ask you questions about your life away from work, so that our audience can get to know you better. You ready? 
Absolutely. All right. I got to ask you now. You said you actually got Fs on your transcript. What did you get? Oh, what did I get an F on? Yeah. Uh, freshman genetics. They, uh, they used my nature paper on the Human Genome Project to substitute and graduate. Otherwise, I would have not been able to graduate on time. But I failed freshman genetics. I mean, I feel like... What did your parents say when you got your... Uh, I'm assuming that was your first F. What did your parents' guardians say when you got, when you got that? Actually, it was not. It wasn't. <laughs> it was not. Uh, what did my parents say? Uh, I, have, uh, I don't actually know. Uh, I, I think it was probably... Oh, not again. <laughs> probably not again. I like that. So the blurb that you've written for yourself at the bottom of your LinkedIn is pretty fascinating. It says you race Ironman, train guide dogs, and dabble in photography. Three very distinctly different hobbies. You have completed an Ironman. Is that accurate? That is. How many, or I guess, how long did you train, excuse me, before you completed one? Uh, that was probably about eight months. And were you already an athlete or did you just, were you one of those guys that woke up and like, you know what I want to do? I want to do this. There, Because there are people like that. <laughs> <laughs> definitely not. Yeah, definitely not that. Uh, I, I ran uh, competitively uh, in high school and did a little bit uh, and ran a little bit in college, but I had a nasty hip injury, so I had to give that up. And I remember discovering triathlons. I was like, this is amazing. I get to swim one day. I get to run the next and bike the day after that. This is perfect. This is, this is exactly what I need. So I probably, I probably spun up to Ironmans over the course of like, I don't know, I'm guessing a year or so, year, maybe a year and a half. That's still pretty darn impressive. My only claim to fame in a distance endurance sport was I, I, and it's not a claim to fame. It's a claim to embarrassment. I attempted to run a marathon with no training. And I didn't realize that the purpose of the training was actually so your body could take the punishment. At mile 14, I was feeling good. By mile like 17, I was developing stress fractures in my foot. And ultimately, I limped across because I had so many stress fractures in my foot because I had never run that far. That is a uh, small muscle development and the, and the, and the bone development actually yeah, turns out to be actually quite important for ultra endurance racing. <laughs> How about guide dogs? What kind of, what does that mean? Is it, it means a lot of things to me. Like what, what is training guide dogs? Yeah. Uh, so I, I, uh, um, I've, I've trained, uh, Three and ten. Um, uh, one's in Ohio, one's in Pennsylvania, one's in uh, Washington. Awesome. But they're guide dogs for the blind. Um, they they uh, you know they they work with their their partners. Um, they have one partner um, and they're they're visually impaired and they help them regain the freedom that that, that you lose from from this. Now, how did you obtain the skill, the knowledge, the desire to to, to do this? It's, it seems very no. And because I, I know training a guide dog is not an easy thing. It's like years of. Well, I believe it's years of working with a dog? Yeah, it's about a year and a half to two years per dog. Um, and then after, after me, they, they go back for, let's call it advanced training, uh, which is like another six months or so, six months to a year, depending. I love dogs. I've always loved dogs. Um, I have, uh, I've had big old German Shepherds for my entire life. Um, I have a hundred pound German Shepherd now. And, you know, there's the PR story and then there's the real story. The real story for, for your audience is that, uh, you know, I love dogs. I was a 20 something single guy living in Seattle. I was like, all right, maybe I shouldn't get my own dog right now, but how can I have a dog and do something good for the world? And I should train guide dogs. Um, so started out, uh, helped out on a bunch of, a uh, bunch of different dogs and then decided to take the plunge and, uh, and, and train some of my own. By the way, uh, if you ever want to see a grown man cry, uh, go to the guide dog graduation ceremony, bald, like a little baby, not uh, not afraid to admit it. Like your own child graduating. Oh yeah. Like, you know, it's coming, you know, you're gonna have to give them up. You know they're going to go to someone else. It doesn't change the fact that you're going to ball like a little baby. Kishal, just showing, just showing the emotion. Kishal, we appreciate you joining us today on IT Visionary, sharing your, your history in data science, your experience, and also some of the cool things that you guys are up to at Open Door. And thanks for showing us that emotional side of you. The heartwarming tale of taking care of the graduating a guide dog. I think I would do the same. You should. It's amazing. 
I think so. I love my dog. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experiences, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform.